Well, here we are. And dancing to Carly Rae Jepsen songs is definitely an act of self-care. This is Well, Here We Are, a weekly podcast which explores the ways pop culture and the humanities matter for our daily lives by distilling them into lists of three-ish things. As Nick Miller from New Girl might say, you guys want to see two grown women cry? No? Then get out! (laughs) But please stay. But please stay. Because today we're tackling our fears, anxieties, and the imposter syndrome associated with trying to break into the creative industries. But we also have animal facts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Suzanne. (laughs) We are really selling this episode super well. I hope I I didn't scare anyone (laughs) off, but this is going to be a fun and and, uh, upsetting one. (laughs) But fun. (laughs) Okay, but before we get into all that, we've got a few announcements. First and most importantly, we love you. Thank you for listening. Uh, Second, and coming right after that first announcement, this is going to maybe sound a little manipulative, but if you love us in return, or even just have some fondness for us, you don't have to love us if you're not there yet, but if you have some fondness, we would very much appreciate if you could go on down to your neighborhood iTunes and leave us a five-star review on our podcast. We are just a little baby podcast, and every five-star review helps a lot. So if you could do that, that would be great. Third, and again, want to reiterate how much we love you. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) We need to make a few updates to our posting schedule. So until probably October, we're going to be moving to an every other week posting schedule. And we're going to be moving our posting day to Thursdays. I know that not everyone is sitting on the edge of their seats on Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern time waiting for us to upload. Just so you know. Thursday instead of Wednesday coming up every other Thursday for some time and until we figure our lives out. (laughs) So for the next 10 to 15 years and finally, final announcement. If you have not visited our website, we want to just give one more plug until the next time we plug this, (laughs) that you go to wellherepod.com. Every episode, we have links to resources. We are planning some blog posts for our ideas that have a more visual component. And you can also buy us a coffee or several coffees if you are so inclined to show your expression of fondness for us through cappuccinos. Which is how I measure affection. Okay, is that... All of our announcements, we got our announcements out of the way. I think we got our announcements out of the way, and I think we should reward our audience with an animal fact. Okay. All of my animal facts, I want to be a good graduate student and source all my facts. They all come from the Instagram account, Sad Animal Facts, which means they also come (laughs) with cartoons. If you don't follow this account, you should do it. It's great. Okay, so my first fact is a group of meerkats in danger will stand together to look like one larger animal. And the little cartoon that comes with it is three meerkats standing up and they say all in one voice, I am a wild dog. It is a pleasure to meet you. That's how I feel whenever I prepare for a job interview. It's like, (laughs) I am just, hello, good sir. I am a wild dog. I am am fierce and I am to be taken seriously. It's more convincing when your voice goes up like that. So Hannah, what are we even 
doing here? This has already been very chaotic. What is happening? (laughs) Yeah, this episode, I think, is going to be a lot of us talking about just our personal fears about our future and what we're doing with ourselves. There might be times when our voices go up in pitch because we're afraid. We're, we're going to be discussing our fears about entering the creative industries, our personal fears, collective fears, social fears, <laughs> so many fears. If um, you heard, I, if you listen to our lockdown anniversary episode and you're like, oh, hearing these two ladies spiral into madness is kind of <laughs> enjoyable for me. Well, then this is the episode for you. I think this is going to involve less crying on my part. Oh, I, yeah. I, I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, I, I can't make any promises. I guess it's just, we just feel like it's an important conversation to have, and so we've decided to have it publicly. Uh, And just for those who maybe don't, if this is your first episode, and you're like, what do you mean by creative industries? What is this industry you're trying to get into? Hannah's background is in museum studies and art history, and she is trying to work in provenance research, repatriation, museum studies fields. And my background is I am currently working in an admin position at a university, but I am a writer who is trying to become a paid writer specifically for the film and television industry. And my degree was in film and television studies. So film and television, like cultural criticism, basically. And we are trying to find ways to break into those fields. To be clear, I don't create art. So when I say work in the creative industries, I I work studying art and studying art history and curation and as as you said, Suzanne Provenance research, but I don't I don't create art. So I'm not gonna be talking about that today. End of sentence. <laughs> I wonder if, if there have been any incidences of artists trafficking their own art. Because maybe that could be a field that mm. you could start to become an artist so that you could traffic your own art so that you could track it down and be a hero. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like I'd have to have a much better understanding of manipulation of the art market to do that. And the art market is just a very scary place to Well, be. what else do you have going on right now, Hannah? Get on, get on it. <laughs> That's true. It's a good point. I guess I'm a creator in the sense that I create podcasts. We have not tallied up the number of fears we have. I have like one general fear that I will speak on behalf of both of us. And then I have a specific fear. How many fears are you bringing to the table today? I have one big fear. And then I have one fear that I think lots of people share in all their other fields. Okay. So we're bringing to you today four-ish fears. That's not that bad. That's not that scary. No. All right. And and an unknown number of animal facts just peppered in whenever we feel so, so inclined. I can get us started with fear number one. And I'm speaking a little bit on behalf of both of us. And you can tell me if this is not actually a fear that you share. But fear number one we have about the creative, working in the creative industries is that we are not going to be able to work in the creative industry. (laughs) Like that's just the like, we won't be able to do this thing that we're never going to get to paid to get paid to do this thing that we've spent time studying, we've spent time developing our craft. And yeah, it's just like a very basic, obvious, boring fear. But a cousin to this fear, I think, is what if I am bad at this thing and that is why I'm not getting paid to do it. 
So that is our first general fear is like, what if it doesn't work out? And what if I'm bad at it? And it's just like so boring to talk about that because it's like, yeah, everybody's afraid that they're not going to be able to do the thing and that they're bad at it. Like be more original. I'm sorry. I just had to get it out there. Yeah, I would say that my my secondary fear is basically related to that, which is the fear that we're never going to get paid to do it and the fe- just the fear of failure. Yeah. So we can and, just we can just bundle those into one big fear. Um here's the thing though that I think I am at an advantage at in a way that you are not, which is that I can keep doing the thing that I am trying to do whether or not I get paid to do it. All I need to be a writer is my brain and a way to write words down. Now, hopefully one day I will get paid to do some of those words, but that is not a condition for me to keep writing. I can just keep doing it. You know, there's tons of forums for me to do that. And I feel like that puts me at a little bit of an advantage because, I mean, like, I guess you could continue. This is like a way for you to exercise those creative industry muscles without getting paid to do it. But you are a little bit more, I think, beholden to the industry to even do the thing that you are wanting to do. Yeah, I would say that's accurate. And that's, in fact, one reason why I wanted to make a podcast with you, because I feel like since graduating and since being unemployed, I just don't have any creative outlet because I guess I, you know, there's any number of hobbies that I could take, like I could take up writing. It's just not my thing. I can't do my thing. Like I can't go into archives and libraries. And for a long time, I couldn't even go into museums. I think next weekend, I'm going to be going into a museum for the first time in a year and a half. That is a big day. I'm really excited. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't have access to the things that I want to be doing. And so having the podcast just to have a creative outlet and to just talk about the things that I want to be doing has actually been really helpful for me emotionally. (laughs) Yeah, but that's, that's, that's true. And even some of the, like some of the jobs that I've been applying for are just very underpaid. And the, the fear of like having done job applications for, I mean, it's not been a year. It's where I'm like coming up on a year getting to a point where I'm like, okay, well, what, at what point do I say I'm going to take an unpaid internship, Mm. you know, or work or I can't work in this field. Right. Yeah. It's obviously a, a bad time. And I don't know if, if I had done this five years ago, if it would be the same or if I would be doing it two years in the future, if it would be the same, but it's definitely a bad time to be working in the creative industries right now. And on that note, I would like to bring you an animal fact. A sea otter pup's fur is so dense that it can't dive underwater until it gets its adult fur, which means that (laughs) baby sea otters are legitimately too fluffy to find their own food. (laughs) Oh, it's so cute. It's so cute. Um, and I'm being a bad graduate student. I just <laughs> took all these facts from like, random websites. So, cuteanimalfacts.com. Cuteanimalfacts.com is our next creative endeavor if this doesn't work out. All right, hit us up with fear number two. Okay, fear number two. Oh boy. Okay, here we go. So, I want to work in the art world. 
The art world is exclusionary. It is exclusionary at every level. It's more difficult for people of color to succeed as artists, as museum workers, as consumers. I recently read an, an interview with Roxanne Gay, who um, she was talking about going to buy a piece of art in a New York gallery that she had already paid for. And she was just going to pick it up from the gallery. And she was basically treated as a second-class citizen because she's a black woman in this gallery. She had already paid for the painting. She's like, I want to give you the money to have this thing. I already yeah. gave you the money to have this thing. Uh, yeah, I already gave you the money. But in in the art world, as I said that I was like scared of the art market. There's There's these ideas that people have that like only certain people should have access to art. And I'm sure you can guess who those certain people are. It's so, it's so icky. And yeah, I just hate it. But if you walk into an art space, you're going to see primarily those people, right? You're going to see primarily middle-class white people, even in a museum. And the language that we use to talk about art is, in my opinion, designed to intimidate. Hmm. So people who aren't directly educated in how to talk about art don't feel welcome participating in that conversation. That it's, and, it's part of the creating the mystique of the, the art yes, world. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And internships, like even if I wanted to get an internship, they are underpaid or unpaid, which means that people who aren't independently wealthy don't have access to them. And established staff basically work until they die. So there's no space for new staff to come in with like any different interpretation. So it's just the, the entire like art field is exclusionary. So I'm trying to get into this field that is like, yeah, on the surface, like I am exactly what an art history major looks like. But that is gross. That's like really, really <laughs> gross to me. So I just don't, I just don't know how to navigate. Like, I, I think it's really like all the conversations that art museums are having right now are really important, but they're doing it almost like against, like they don't want to be doing it. Like yeah. art museums don't want to be decolonizing and they don't want to repatriate their collections. They don't want to be giving their their collections back to people. They do not. And so what I want to do, which is repatriate, which is to give indigenous people's stuff back to them, is directly in contrast to the point to like the mission of the museum. I just don't know like how to how to walk into a museum and say I'm here to basically tear you down. <laughs> I love museums, you know, it's just like, there's just this contrast to me that I really enjoy museums. But I also feel like if you can't have an ethical space, if you can't display art in an ethical way that is for everybody, that is everybody's art, display art by artists of color, display yeah. art by, you know, then maybe we just shouldn't have these museums. Yeah. Museums that call themselves like quote unquote universal museums that say, we're not going to give our stuff back. We're not going to give back the Benin bronzes because this is a universal museum and we show all of the world's <laughs> art for all people because everybody can come here and learn about all the world's cultures. That's fine in theory, but if you can't do that without theft, then you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. If the only way you can accomplish displaying this art and this culture is unethical, then you shouldn't be doing it. And also we didn't elect you to do that. You right. have you have opted to do that, which okay. And 
nobody, there wasn't like a worldwide poll where the countries that you have this theft from was like, would we like our artifacts to be brought to this universal museum? No, they didn't. They weren't consulted. <laughs> and guess where most of those museums are? And, and just to be like, we're doing this for you. Is like welcome. such a weird gaslighty, like this is in your own best interest. You just don't realize it. Like, ew, ew. Yeah. Yeah. No offense, Hannah. I know you're trying to work in this industry. <laughs> I know, I know. And so it's like I just don't know how how to how to get into this industry that I think is both wonderful and really, really icky and gross and disgusting. And to feel like I am doing good things. But also not paint myself as like a white savior. That's also not what I want. You know, I'm just having, I just have a lot of feelings. I just want to repatriate the things. <laughs> I just don't, I just, I don't want to, I don't want to work in a space that I think is unethical and exclusionary, but that is what I'm actively trying to do. So that's my fear. Yeah, that's a, that's a real head scratcher there, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a real, uh, that's a real conundrum we've got you, that you find yourself in, my friend. Well, I have an art adjacent animal fact. Oh, hit hit us with that. Again, this also comes from sad animal animal facts. Goldfish can tell the difference between Bach and Stravinsky, and there's a little cartoon with a goldfish saying, "Ugh, this is one of his worst concertos." <laughs> I read a similar animal fact about pigeons that pigeons yes, can I tell the same difference. Yes, I read about pigeons too, between Picasso and a Monet. Yeah, man. Yeah. Connoisseurs, these animals are. They are. So if they're so good, if they're such connoisseurs, then why do we have to? All the rest of us talk about art like it's this unattainable, mystical. Like a pigeon can tell the difference between these things. Why we don't have to do this? Yeah. One of my cousins is a. Um, is a sommelier and I was talking to him about it once and he said that basically he feels the same way about wine that anybody should be able to enjoy wine if they like the taste of wine but the vocabulary that we have invented to describe wine creates this exclusionary environment in which we think that you have to be able to talk about the legs and the the oaky finish and yeah and the, the oaky finish yeah and the reality, like anybody should be able to enjoy art but we've created this environment that really it comes down to like my eyeballs like to look at this thing because yes. it makes my heart yeah. feel things. Yeah. Or it makes yeah. my brain do things. And yeah. wine is really all I like putting liquid in my mouth because <laughs> it, it makes mouth feel good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, that actually dovetails quite nicely with my next fear because this is also something that happens in the film and TV industry, like, quite a bit. I, I I don't know if you know this, but The Onion does movie reviews, and they did a movie review of Mamma Mia 2. And, oh, did they? And their movie review was basically like, if you are one of the people that's giving this a one-star review, what is wrong with you? Like, do you, <laughs> do you really think... That the cast and crew and directors of Mamma Mia 2 were out trying to make the next Academy Award winner. No, they were just trying to make... The next Citizen Kane. They were just trying to make a fun movie for people to enjoy. And I'm sorry if you are too soulless of a monster to enjoy that. (laughs) But, like, maybe sometimes things can just be fun. 
Yeah. yeah. Maybe sometimes things can just be like, ooh, I like that. And it doesn't have to be as deep as that. So that is kind of that like sort of exclusionary language is all throughout the film and TV industry as well. And you had said, you know, I'm trying to work in this industry that is like inherently predatory in like certain ways. And uh, that is exactly what my very specific fear is. What if I get harassed or assaulted? (laughs) Which is awful that that is like something that I am legitimately concerned about. And I'm not just talking about like sexual assault, but I'm talking about like workplace harassment. We've mentioned, alluded to on a couple of episodes, this Scott Rudin story. There have now been three articles that have come out about Scott Rudin, who is a Broadway producer. He is a film producer. He is one of only a handful of EGOT winners, which means he has an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony Award. And there have been three different, like, deep dive investigatory, is that? Investigative. (laughs) (laughs) investigative journalism articles about his decades-long harassment of employees, like psychological, physical, verbal abuse of, of employees for his production company over decades. And I could count the number of people that have spoken out about Scott Rudin in the industry on one hand. It has been like crickets. And it's because everyone legitimately, this is what I think, they all legitimately believe that Scott Rudin is going to go to anger management for three months and he's going to come back and he's going to get back into industry and all the industry folks don't want to burn their bridges with him because he is an incredibly powerful producer. He is incredibly well known. And so when Harvey Weinstein came, when all the allegations and reports of Harvey Weinstein's abuse came out, everyone read those and was like, well, I've never done that, right? I've never invited women up to my hotel room and then Mm -hmm. was incredibly predatory with them. You read the Scott Rudin allegations and reports, and it's like, oh, screaming at a production assistant who is 22 years old until she is shaking and crying. I think there's a lot more people in the industry that are like, oh, okay, maybe I've done that. And so they can't speak out against him, even though this is terrible behavior, because they are are like, I, I can't necessarily say I haven't witnessed that or I haven't participated in it. So one of the people that spoke out actually was Michael Chabon, who's an author. He's been working with Scott Rudin over the years for a number of projects trying to get his books optioned into film or TV. And so what he apologized for was the times that he had witnessed Scott Rudin's abusive behavior of his employees. And the only time he really said something was there was like an email snafu where an email where Scott Rudin was abusive and um, disdainful towards Michael Chabon's wife made it to Michael Chabon. And so when that happened, he like severed all ties with Scott Rudin and was like, this is not a good man. But he's like, I didn't do that until it impacted me personally. And I should have done that years ago because I did witness things. um, And I'm so sorry. And I think it's uh, these, these stories are hiding in plain sight in the film and TV industry. 
there was that actor, like, Hannah, I don't know if you ever watched that show Criminal Minds, Mm -mm. but there was an actor on there. He was also, he played Greg in Dharma and Greg, the Jenna Elfman sitcom from the 90s and early 2000s. He was fired from Criminal Minds because he kicked a member of the crew. He was like aggressive towards a member and physically violent towards a member of the crew. And when he was let go, it was like, oh, his anger on set had been a problem for decades. I'm reading an oral history of the Jon Stewart Daily Show years. And I love Jon Stewart. I love the Jon Stewart Daily Show. But I sent you an excerpt from the book and I was just like, thanks, I hate it. Because there was a woman executive producer who told a story about Jon Stewart getting so angry with her that he threw a stack of papers in her face. And maybe you're like, well, that's not a big deal. But I would just like, I would just like for you to think about sitting in a chair across from your boss and having anything thrown at you and how just upsetting that would be. And Jon Stewart is like a good guy of Hollywood. (laughs) And he says that this didn't happen. He said he threw something, but he did not throw it at her. But she says he did throw it. He threw it at my face. And these these are just like three examples. And I just know that if I get into that room, if I get to have these experiences, if I get to sell my thing and I am at the receiving end of this kind of behavior, I don't I don't think I would I would be able to do it again. <laughs> I I don't think I would have the that thing that you need to be able to show up the next day uh, knowing that you were treated that way. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's just my fear is that I'm going to get assaulted or harassed. <laughs> it's, no, it's no big deal. Yeah, and related to that is that the film and TV, I just have this fear that the film and TV industry is never going to uproot this. Like, they're never going to yeah. really get rid of this because – It's been like this since the 1920s when there was a film and TV industry with men like like Mr. Meyer from Metro-Goldwyn-Meyer, like subjecting Judy Garland to horrible, horrible treatment um, because he felt like he owned her and she was his property. This is like in the very like roots of the film and TV industry. And I every new investigatory article... Why do I keep saying investigatory? Investigative. (laughs) Every single investigative article, I think, is trying to, like, chip away at this, like, mammoth institution. And I'm just, I am just worried that it's not going to ever change. That's, like, a tough pill for me to swallow. Yeah, I think your industry is one, I don't, I don't know a lot about a lot of industries, but it just seems like like film and television is one where there's just so many people who will, who feel like willing to do whatever it takes to make it. And so that's easy to take advantage of. And I think this is true of like a lot of fields where these like abusive predatory practices happen. It's a, well, I dealt with this. So now you can deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, why should anyone have to deal with this? Why should anyone be treated this way? There was that, list like when all the Harvey Weinstein stuff started coming out I I remember reading that there was a list circulating among like among like actresses about producers and writers and actors who were like 
stay away from these mm-hmm. guys, like da- a danger list. But it's so, like, secretive. The thing that made everybody turn their back on Harvey Weinstein was that it felt so egregious and so out of what people have deemed as normal. But I'm like, oh, buddy, tip of the iceberg. And you don't want to deal with what's the what's under there. Yeah. Burn it all down. <laughs> Burn it all down. Uh, do you want another animal fact, Hannah? I would love to hear another animal fact. So if a honeybee keeps waggle dancing (laughs) like they find a place that they want to nest and they're like waggle dancing to try to get the other bees to come over but all the other bees are like no this is a bad place the other worker bees will headbutt her (laughs) until they can all reach consensus on a better spot Get your head in the game, Donna. It's like they vote. Get your head in the game, Donna. We're not going to live here. (laughs) Oh, that's very cute. Yeah. Your facts are very cute. Yeah. All right. Is that it? Have we covered all of our fears? I can't remember everything we talked about in our first fear. We, like, touched on imposter syndrome and, like, what if we can't do this thing? Yeah. Yeah, that was just a whole bundle of fears. Yeah, that was like a, that was a turducken of fears. A turducken of fears. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any part of the turducken that you would like to pull out and examine more closely for our final and four-ish fear? I'm not going to put you on fear blast here. I don't think so. I mean, I just, I, I feel like we kind of, we don't need to get into like the fear that we're just going to fail. Yeah. No, that's I boring. Feel, Everyone feels yeah. like they're going to fail, Everyone, right? Yeah. Everyone. If they, if they don't <laughs> feel that way, they should. Yeah. Well, I guess the... The question is, like, so what do we, what do we do with this? Like, I am fearing things that have not yet happened. My big fear is, like, what if I get into that room and this thing happens to me? Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is, like, not a useful fear. Yeah, but I, I I don't know if you're like this, but I have a lot of conversations in my head before they happen so that I can play out every possibility. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, because I don't, I'm not good at thinking on my toes, it takes me a while to like think through something and to process something. So I feel like if I have thought about this eventuality beforehand, then maybe I will be better prepared to respond to it when it happens. Yes. And 99% of those things never happen. But if they did, you would be ready. I, I mean, that's the theory. The theory is that I would be ready if someone said those words to me or someone tried to do X, Y, and Z to me that if I have, if I have, thought about it beforehand and if I've made a plan, think about it, talk about it, make a plan. Thank you, Daniel that, Tiger. Thank you, Daniel Tiger. I, I do agree that like a lot a lot of fears are not helpful, but I think some fears are helpful. <laughs> because if it helps you make a plan, but then there's also the possibility then in the moment I'm gonna be so surprised and shocked and horrified that I'm just gonna freeze up like a what's an animal that freezes up? Deer in the headlights, but that's not a cute one. Oh, deers can be cute. They are cute, but then you hit them with your car. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa, no. I'm sorry, I'm don't, sorry. Don't come for us, PETA. Um, yeah, but I don't know what to do with our fears, I guess. Do you know? You don't know what to do either. We just have them. Well, I think we are doing what we have to do with them, which is you acknowledge the truth of them, and then you put one step in front of the other, and you go and try to do the thing. I want my fears to make me wiser. I don't want my fears to become barriers that prevent me from trying to do the thing. 
I think fear can be useful when it is doing exactly what you said, which is trying to get me ready to encounter potentially some difficult circumstances. But the the reason why I would be in that room is because I've written something that is energizing to me and I think other people are going to like and I want to share it with them. And I never want to stop doing that thing. I think we just have to sit with it and then keep doing the thing because the thing is what we are here for. It's not the fear. With you, I would say, yeah, there's going to be a lot of bad, crappy institutions that have bad institutional policies, but you are not working, you are not pursuing working in a museum to work in a museum. You are working in a museum to do the work that excites you. And so I think we just have to keep the work, the thing ahead of us and working for these predatory people, working for these institutions, fearing what is going to happen is not, it's not what we're trying to do. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. Yeah. No, you're right. I'd say most days, like, I don't let the fear get the best of me. And it's also helpful to know that it's not like it's now or never, you know? Yeah. Like, we, we have we have time. We don't, we don't have to succeed in our, in our 30s or, or we fail. We can keep plugging away. All right. Before we close out, are there any of your animal facts that you're like, I would be really disappointed if I didn't share this animal fact? Yes, I have one more. Okay. And I like this one because I relate to it. A basking shark eats anything that swims into its mouth. <laughs> I got a little, a little cartoon of a basking shark with its mouth open saying, weird, this entire thing of pad thai just ended up here. Oh, well, did you know that sea otters eat 25% of their body weight and food every day? <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> Must be nice. <laughs> well, you have to to keep all that fur density. <laughs> Too fluffy to dive. <laughs> all right. And at this point, we turn to you, the people, the listeners that we, I think we have mentioned that we love and that we appreciate <laughs> and value, despite the fact that we will start abandoning you every other week. <laughs> But we'll be back the week after. But we'll be back the week after. As Daniel Tiger might say, grown-ups come back. So we will be gone, but we will come back. We want to hear from you, though. And as much as, you know, if you want to share your professional fears and anxieties and sense of dread, we're happy to hear that. But we would also encourage you to share your favorite animal fact. Maybe you can drop that in your iTunes review when you go over to iTunes and leave us five stars. It's a twofer. You get to share a fact and you get to demonstrate you love us. You can let us know your favorite animal facts also by tweeting at us or visiting us on Instagram, both places we are at wellherepod. You can also email us all of your long-form thoughts. How do you handle professional fear? I'm sure you guys have some good wisdom. Our email address is wellherepod at gmail.com. Don't forget to go to wherever you get your podcasts and click that super chill podcast episode, guys, which you might know as a follow button. And until next time, I'm Suzanne and Aaron Sorkin. You are still on my list. And I'm Hannah. And my favorite bird is Flamingo. And well, here we are. Evergreen. 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 Evergre